Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of child abuse, sexual abuse, and intimate partner abuse. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This is Method and Madness, Episode 64, Consequences, Jacob Londine. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. gives me hope that every time I tell his story, we are that much closer to getting justice for Jacob. And that, that I think is what pushes me to continue because there's a lot of times when I want to stop. And every time I tell a story, every time somebody offers to share Jacob's story on their platform, that gives me hope that people care and that he's not going to be forgotten. Today, I have a very special episode for you. From time to time, I'd like to share with you my experiences on this journey as a victim advocate and podcaster. One of the best parts is the people I get to meet along the way. One of the worst parts is meeting those people under very tragic circumstances. My guest today is someone I first met briefly at CrimeCon in Vegas 2022. We then got to hang out at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas in August of 2022. Eric Carter Londine is the host of True Consequences, an Albuquerque-based true crime and mystery podcast with a focus on New Mexico and the American Desert Southwest. He's also an all-around great person and somebody I'm proud to call my friend. Today, Eric is joining us to talk about a case that started his journey as an advocate, a story of a murder that occurred in 1987. It's the murder of Jacob Landine, Eric's baby brother. This case is not a mystery. It is known who is responsible for Jacob's horrible death, though justice has not been served. But it's coming. This is Jacob's story. Let's dive in. My name is Eric Carter Landine, and I am Jacob Jeremiah Landine's big brother. Jacob was born on July 1st, 1986 in Edinburgh, Texas. He was my parents' third child, fourth if you count the twins. So Randy was the first child. He was part of a twin pairing and the twin was miscarried and then Randy died an hour after birth. He had a, a weak heart. 
he was born in 1978. I was born in November of 1980 and had some challenges, but was relatively healthy and pretty happy kid. I was lonely as a single child. I wanted a brother. I wanted a sibling. I didn't really have to be a brother, but I was secretly hoping for a brother. So my father, my mother were very religious. My dad was a Pentecostal evangelist. And that looks like somebody who travels around the country and puts a tent up and starts saving people. And so I was raised in, in a pretty religious home. And so I prayed for Jacob. I prayed for him every night when I said my, my nighttime prayers. And I would tell my mom any chance that I could that she was going to get pregnant and she was going to have a boy and all the plans that I had for being a big brother. And it didn't take very long. My prayers were answered. I remember the day I found out we were at the park and I had just ridden my bike for the first time without training wheels and wrecked into a bush and was crying. And my parents kind of knelt down around me and to distract me. They, I think they had a plan on telling me anyway, but they took that moment to distract me from, from the pain I was in. And I jumped up and started running around the park, yelling and jumping up and down. I was super excited to be a big brother. Jacob was a 10-pound bundle of joy, and big brother Eric was thrilled. Watching a baby grow and start to develop their unique personality is such a delightful experience, and Eric described his baby brother as fearless. One time, he was in the kitchen pulling all of the drawers out of the cabinets, and there were knives and forks and spoons and everything falling around him, making a ton of noise. And I ran into the kitchen to see what he was doing. And I'm like, Jacob, what are you doing? And he just looked at me and he started laughing. He had this funny laugh. He sounded like Eddie Murphy, kind of. He would do this little like... Uh, <laughs> I can still hear it. <laughs> it was crazy. It was a crazy laugh. I don't know where he got it from. <laughs> Nobody in my family laughs like that. But that was him. He was fearless and happy and such a bright light. And it's, it's incredible because it's, it's hard to imagine a baby having such a huge impact in our family. But he did. He was your wish. Yeah. He was my answered prayer. Eric tears up several times during our conversation. You can probably hear it in his voice. It's not only touching, but it's also another reminder that no matter how many years have passed, how many decades, that emotion can still be so raw. It doesn't go away. It gets more manageable and it gets, I guess, easier to cope with, but it doesn't stop. He takes me back to the beginning, right after Jacob was born. Eric was five that summer, and his mom, Brenda, had her hands full with a baby and a small child who was about to head to kindergarten. Eric's and Jacob's father, Gene, traveled a lot and was gone for weeks at a time. My mom couldn't work because she didn't have family out there, and there wasn't anybody that she could rely on to babysit, so she was with us. And... My dad wasn't really good at 
being responsible and remembering that he had a family at home that needed funds to be able to eat and pay our bills. And so my mom was often left without food to feed us. And there were times where we would have to rely on the kindness of strangers in order to eat. And my mom was really sad and depressed about it. And my dad had made this relationship or friendship with a woman and they were emotionally connecting. I don't think that they were physically connecting, but they were emotionally connecting. And my mom found out about it. And that was the last straw for her. She she couldn't take it anymore. She needed to be where her family was, which was in New Mexico. She needed to be in a place where she had support so that she could take care of the kids because my dad was not fulfilling his obligations as a father. So Brenda took the kids and moved from Texas back to Socorro, New Mexico, to be near family. They settled into Eric's and Jacob's grandparents' house, and Brenda got a job at a local grocery store. Between their grandparents and their aunts, Eric and Jacob had plenty of babysitters, and Brenda could start saving money to get them their own place. It was around this time that a friend of the family started coming around more and more, to ensure that nothing gets in the way of a potential prosecution, we will not be using this man's real name. Eric has chosen to call him John for this episode. John was my dad's best friend. He had known my mom his whole life. My mom had known him her whole life. His sister was married to my mom's brother. His aunt is my godmother. His dad pastored a church that my dad kind of interned in, I guess you could say it's not what it's called, but that's what he did. He, he worked there and learned how to preach through this, through this man, through his best friend's dad. That's how they became best friends. My mom knew him. They went to school together. My family went to that church. This person wasn't a stranger. I guess that's why I say all of this. This was somebody that my family knew very well. This was somebody that my family trusted, that we believed was a good person. So he had inside information into my parents' relationship and the fact that it fell apart and the reason that it fell apart. And so he used that information to swoop in and save the day with my mom. He started showering my mom with affection and attention and gifts and money and offering to help and to give rides and just being a very nice, helpful person. He's also expressing to my mom that he has romantic feelings for her and that he wants to be in a relationship with her. It's the furthest thing from my mom's mind. She's just gotten out of this marriage where things were awful She's trying to get her life back together, but he's persistent and he is persuasive. And so he wiggles his way into our lives and my mom starts dating him. You may recognize what Eric is describing as love bombing. Mental health professionals describe this as a tactic where an individual, quote unquote, bombs you with extreme displays of attention and affection, particularly in the beginning of a courtship. 
Why is that a bad thing? Because it can and often does lead to abuse, including gaslighting, manipulation tactics utilized to control. It starts with being swept off your feet. One article, medically reviewed by Dr. Sabrina Romanoff, describes one red flag, a sign that you may be involved with a master manipulator, as, quote, they chillingly seem to know what you want to hear. These signs and the red flags that accompany them were certainly not discussed in the 1980s, and even today, when awareness is spread at a fast rate through social media, anyone can become a victim of manipulation. And by all outward appearances, John appeared to be normal. Eric explains that he was an upstanding member of the community and worked for the county. This wasn't some random person off the street or someone who was giving off bad vibes in any way. But then, injuries started happening to Jacob. At some point, he invites my mom to move in with him in his mobile home. And she's not really wanting to, but we do spend some time there. And there's times where we spend the night there. There's, you know, Jacob has a crib there and I have a bed there. And eventually we do end up living with him. And Jacob starts to have injuries that are unexplainable. And things start happening that are just really weird, that don't make any sense. And, you know, one injury, Jacob had a scrape on his ear. And John told my mom that I had hit Jacob or kicked Jacob or something, or I dropped Jacob out of his crib. He said that he had left me alone with his kid, with Jacob, so he could take his kids to his, his ex-wife's house. I don't remember that happening. I can't think of a single instance where it would be a good idea to leave a six-year-old in charge of a three-month-old. Even for 15 minutes, it just doesn't make any sense to me that he would do that. But that's what he claimed. And he claimed that I picked Jacob up out of the crib and dropped him. And that's, that's how he got hurt. The crib was really high. It was... It had to have been like four or five feet high. And so it would not have been easy for me to do that. I would have had to have taken a chair from the kitchen or somewhere, pushed it in there, picked him up out of there. I'm not saying that it's impossible. It just doesn't make sense to me. At the time that Jacob started getting these injuries, John was distancing himself from the incidents. The story that he left the house and left a six-year-old Eric to keep an eye on infant Jacob came out in a police report months later. Jacob's injuries were conveniently attributed to his older brother. Eric did it while nobody was looking. Brenda was never there when the injuries occurred, and understandably, she believed the other adult in the room when he said that a six-year-old was the cause. When Jacob got a head injury, and had to be treated at the hospital, John blamed Eric. I don't remember it, but that, you know, I was young, so that doesn't really mean much either. Could it have happened? Maybe. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know about it. Jacob had a hematoma on his skull, and it had to be lanced and drained. 
John told my mom that I kicked Jacob in the head and that's and that he saw me and that's where the injury came from. I've since talked to medical professionals who have told me that it is not physically possible for a six-year-old to kick a baby with the force of strength required to cause that to happen, for it to build up fluid and to start like, it was actually a fracture, a skull fracture. We didn't know that until later, but there was just no way that I would have been able to kick him that hard to do that to him. So my mom was really not sure what was going on. You know, I'm being accused of hurting Jacob. I'm being accused of being jealous of Jacob. And so she decides to send me to be with my dad in California to get me out of the situation. Not that she thought I was actually hurting Jacob, but she just wanted to clear up any doubts and also see what was going on. As if a case of infant abuse isn't horrible enough, in this case, you have the extra layer of blaming an innocent child for it. Is it easier for adults to believe a child was hurt by another child? Quite possibly. But you heard Eric earlier. This wasn't some random man off the street or a babysitter the family hired without properly vetting him first. This was an old family friend. That he was an abuser and lying about it was far from anyone's mind. After Jacob suffered this head injury, Brenda definitely had her concerns. And generally, if a hospital treats a child and is concerned about abuse or neglect, they will make a phone call. The doctor even called Child Protective Services after the brain injury, after the skull injury, and reported it as a potential child abuse case. There was also an anonymous call that was made by a neighbor to Child Protective Services. And this woman said that, that a man was, was abusing a baby in the, in the house next door. I don't know what she heard or what she saw. I know that the investigation happened and they, that an agent from Child Protective Services showed up at the house but from what I understand, John chased her away and yelled at her and told her to leave, and she did. I don't know why or why like there were no further questions that were asked or no follow-up. Eric explains to me that around the same time that John left Jacob and Eric alone, allegedly, Eric's dad got a call from John's ex-wife. She advised him to file child abuse charges against John but wouldn't say why. And with Eric off living with his dad, there was growing concern about what was happening to Jacob. My mom at this point is really starting to be suspicious because Jacob's behavior has changed a lot. His injuries have continued even though I'm not there. And so she starts to limit how much time Jacob is alone with John to the point where it's almost non-existent. It's almost like he's never alone with, with John. And part of that was the fact that the injuries continued, but also one day my grandmother was watching Jacob. And when my mom picked him up, she said to my mom, I, is something happening to Jacob? Because he's acting really weird. 
And my mom said, well, what do you mean? And my grandma said, well, you know, he always likes to be picked up and he likes to play Superman. He likes to be lifted up over your head. And these are the things that he always enjoys. But now when I do it, he starts freaking out. And my mom says, well, I don't think so. I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen anybody doing anything weird or hurting him. And my grandma says, well, look. And she picks Jacob up and Jacob starts screaming and crying and like grabbing her hair and trying to jump out of her arms into my mom's arms. And so my mom goes to John and says, hey, are you hurting Jacob? Are you doing something? Are you playing rough with him? And John says, no, why? And she tells him, you know, my mom noticed this and he's like, no, all I do is he grabs Jacob. All I do is this. And he picks Jacob up over his head and Jacob is literally trying to jump out of his arms into my mom's arms and is screaming at the top of his lungs. And my mom says, I don't know what you're doing, but you need to stop. Do not ever play with Jacob like this ever again. And he's like, I won't, I won't, I promise. And so she's like, okay. This was a stark contrast to the fearless baby that Eric described. Even as an infant, Jacob had figured out that it was hilarious to try and knock over his own baby swing while he was in it, just for the thrill. What had changed? Let's take a break. Are you a true crime advocate, passionate about uncovering the truth and bringing justice to victims? You can immerse yourself in an unforgettable experience at this year's True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival, which takes place in Austin, Texas, August 25th to the 27th, 2023. I attended last year, and this is a fantastic event. It features panel discussions, workshops, and live podcasts, with a special focus on ethics and advocacy in the true crime sphere. And if the paranormal and spooky are your thing, you'll get plenty of that too. To get tickets, go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com and join us in Austin. Don't miss out on the chance to connect with other advocates and take your passion for true crime and the paranormal to the next level. Use the code METHOD for 15% off your ticket and spend the weekend with some very special guests. Julie Murray, sister of missing woman Maura Murray, Tara Newell and Collier Landry of the Survivor Squad podcast, the family of Katie Palmer, plus you'll get to meet today's guest, Eric Carter Londine. That's truecrimepodcastfestival.com. Hope to see you there. Mother's intuition was knocking loud for Brenda. Once Jacob's fearless, joyful personality began changing, he was becoming scared and no longer enjoying the things he'd gotten such a laugh out of before. At this point, there's just, there's no leaving John alone with Jacob at this point. You know, this is it. My mom is now like, something's up. I don't know what's going on, but, you know, I need my mom, I need my sisters to help me take care of Jacob so I can work. On April 9th, 1987, Jacob's nine months old. I'm in California. My mom's at work at Supermart. She works, I think, 10 to 7 that day or 11 to 7. My grandmother calls my mom at 6 o'clock or 5.45 probably and says, I want to go to church. 
Jacob's been feeling a little bit better, but I don't want to bring him because he's been kind of fussy. He hasn't been feeling good ever since he had the brain injury. He had ear aches, allergic reactions to medication, just a bunch of things were going on at the same time. And so my grandmother's like, I, I want to go to church really bad, but I don't want to bring him. What do I do? And my mom, you know, she knew her sisters were busy. So she's like, I guess, I guess you can take him to John. I get off in an hour. What's the worst that could happen in an hour? So my grandma takes Jacob to John. My mom instantly has a bad feeling about the situation. She goes to her boss and she says, I need to leave. I need to go home. I just have a bad feeling. I, I don't like this. I don't want to be here. I want to go home and see my baby. And her boss laughed at her and said, no, you can't. It's going to be busy. You have to finish your shift. I need you here. So she busies herself and tries to not think about it. Tries not to think about it. Another layer of this day was that John had told Brenda that there was a trailer available for them to go look at, a possible new place to live, but it wasn't currently hooked up to electricity and therefore they'd have to go see it before it got dark. Now, Brenda had the added pressure that she had to hurry and go look at this place immediately after work and wouldn't have time to pick up Jacob from her mom's place. So it just made sense, as uneasy as she was, that John would just watch Jacob for a short time. The following segment contains disturbing details. A little bit before 7, John comes running into the grocery store in a panic, saying that Jacob is unconscious and not breathing, and he's going to the hospital. At the same time, there's an ambulance driving down the road with its sirens on. And that was Jacob being taken to the hospital. My mom gets there and he's lying on a bed and she puts her hand on his chest and he takes a deep breath. And the doctor tells her that his injuries are so severe that he has to be airlifted to Albuquerque, which is 75 miles north of where we lived in Socorro. With a, a life flight like that, nobody's allowed to, to fly with, with Jacob. They have to drive the 75 miles to the hospital. When he gets to the University of New Mexico hospital, he is in such distress and his injuries are so severe that they have to rush him into emergency surgery. And the doctor has to sign off on it because my mom's not there because she's driving an hour and a half to get to him. He's in surgery for several hours. And the whole way up there, John is telling my mom, I didn't do it. I promise you I didn't do it. It was an accident. He fell off the couch. He hit his head on the coffee table. It wasn't me. And my mom is just panicking. She, she doesn't want to hear it. She tells him to stop. They get to the hospital. And they find out that Jacob's in surgery. And... I don't know how much time passes, but at some point in the night, the doctor comes out to tell them that Jacob had died in surgery. John's story at this point was that he wasn't exactly sure how nine-month-old Jacob had gotten injured. John had been dubbing some cassette tapes and letting Jacob have a bottle and a teething cracker. And at one point, Jacob had become sleepy, and so John placed the baby on the couch, approximately two and a half feet off the floor. When John turned his back, 
He heard a gasping sound and came back to find Jacob on the floor. Emergency services responded and Jacob was then brought by ambulance to the hospital. It was determined during Jacob's autopsy that he had suffered a head injury about a month prior, which was attributed to Eric kicking his baby brother, an injury so severe that it wasn't possible to have been caused by a six-year-old. Jacob also had an old rib fracture. His death was caused by a severe blow to the head, resulting in a skull fracture that could not have happened from falling off a couch or hitting his head on the coffee table. The pathologist found that the fracture was due to the strike of an open hand with severe force. And now, Brenda had an unimaginable road ahead of her and a truth that would slowly reveal itself at the cost of others. My mom goes running away in hysterics, and she's sobbing and yelling and just losing it, as you would expect. And while she's going through all of that and she's running away and freaking out, John is standing in front of the doctor. And he looks at the doctor and he says, this looks really bad for me. This isn't going to be good for me. I can't believe this is happening to me. And it was so strange the doctor wrote it down in his notes that he seemed more concerned with himself than his girlfriend or the fact that a baby has just died. I am woken up at about five in the morning by my dad. And my dad tells me we have to go back to New Mexico, that there's been an accident and that Jacob was hurt. We get to the Albuquerque airport and we are picked up by my mom and John and the police, state police. And we're taken to an interview, my dad and I. And John, before I go in there, tells me something along the lines of, don't lie, don't you dare lie, you know what happens to people who lie. And the police asked me a bunch of questions. They asked me if I was jealous of Jacob, if I kicked Jacob, if I hit Jacob, if I wanted to hurt Jacob. They asked me if John ever hit Jacob, and I said I didn't think so. I'd never seen him hit Jacob. They asked me if John ever hit me, and I said no, but he always acts like he's going to. And what I meant by that was he would often raise his fist at me like he was going to hit me whenever I was doing something that he didn't like, but he never actually hit me. So I thought that I had hurt Jacob and I thought that I was going to jail. I thought that I was responsible for what happened to him. I didn't understand what was going on. This is my first encounter with death. So. And you're being told by an adult, you know, and a six-year-old believes everything an adult says. Yeah. Eric is one of the kindest people I know, and to hear him still dealing with this guilt is pretty unbearable. Whether you're religious or not, I think we can agree on one thing. There's a special place in hell for child abusers and an even hotter place in hell for abusers who use a child as their scapegoat. Jacob's funeral was kind of a blur. I remember seeing him in the casket. 
I remember saying goodbye. It was the worst day of my life. It wasn't about to get any easier for Brenda and Eric. There was still a darkness looming underneath the surface that John was carefully trying to conceal. John was really pushy with my mom. He wanted to talk to her. He wanted to explain his side of things. So he would go to her work. He would call her work. He would leave notes on her car. He would give notes to her boss to give to her. He would leave notes at my grandparents' house. He would call my grandparents' house all the time. He wanted to talk to my mom. He wanted to explain his side of the story. And the only place he wanted to do that was Jacob's grave. I don't know why. I don't understand it. But my mom refused. She would not go to the graveyard to meet him. She just wasn't going to do it. And I didn't really know or suspect that John was responsible for anything until one day when John got brave enough to go to my grandparents' house to try to talk to my mom. And my grandfather jumped out of his chair, which was something that never happened. When he was in his chair, he was in his chair. Like, that was it. Until he went to bed. He jumped out of his chair and he went running outside. So I followed him because I was curious and had never seen him move that fast. And he goes up to John's car and he starts banging on the window and he says, why don't you hit somebody who can talk, you son of a bitch? And it was in that moment that I realized that people suspected John had done something to Jacob. But it wasn't until then. He's very persistent. And that's just a nice way of saying that he was stalking us. John was frantically seeking any validation that he wouldn't lose Brenda over this. Rather than being a partner to her during her immense, unimaginable grief, he set out on a mission to prove his innocence. So by July of 1987, John told Brenda that he was going to take a polygraph and prove, once and for all, that Jacob's death was nothing more than a tragic accident. He tells Brenda that he's going to Santa Fe to take the polygraph and wants her and Eric to come along to the state police headquarters. And Brenda does, but she and Eric are not allowed inside. They sat there in the car for three to four hours while John was inside taking the polygraph, and when he came out, he proudly told Brenda that he'd passed. Brenda felt that she finally got the answer she needed, and they could move on. Surely if John had failed the test, he wouldn't have been free to go. So Brenda agreed that she was ready to move forward with John and accept that Jacob's death was an accident. The medical examiner's office at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine issued a report with Jacob's cause of death listed as a skull fracture due to blunt trauma to the head. With that report is a case number that states an offense of involuntary manslaughter, victim as Jacob Londine, and the suspect listed as John. The case was never prosecuted, and Deputy District Attorney Bruce Burwell stated, quote, I have determined that there is insufficient evidence to justify filing criminal charges in this matter at this time. Now that John had that hurdle behind him, or so he thought, 
more of his agenda was coming to the surface. He tells her that they have to get married and she doesn't want to get married. She literally just got divorced. But he's like, we have to because I've committed insurance fraud. She asks him what he means by that. And he says, I signed you up for my insurance, you and Eric and Jacob for my insurance. And I put on the form that we were married, but we're not. And so we have to get married or I'm going to go to jail. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he said. So they get married and that's when everything changes. That's when we meet the real John. That's when we get to see a side of John that nobody gets to see. He becomes very violent and controlling. My mom is, and I start to get isolated from the people we care about, from my grandparents and my family, my friends. I get locked in my room anytime that I'm alone with him for hours and hours with no, if I needed the restroom, I would have to knock on my door because it was locked from the outside. And I had to hope that he could hear me. Usually his radio was so loud that he either couldn't hear me or was acting like he couldn't hear me. So I would have to find other ways of relieving myself in my room. He shoved me in a dryer, locked me in at one time because I used the wrong knife to cut a sandwich. If I would look at him, he would accuse me of giving him dirty looks. And my mom would inevitably come to my defense and say, he isn't giving you dirty looks. He's just looking at you. And then he would start punching her. He constantly told my mom the only way that she was leaving him was in a body bag. We never knew what was going to set him off. It could be anything. Literally anything could happen. And he would fly into a rage. For Eric, at seven or eight years old, he was walking on eggshells and learning to protect himself if need be. He kept a kitchen knife, a lighter, and a can of hairspray in his room, and he had a bat under his bed. He never had to use them, but he would end up saving the person he loved most, his mom. One time, my mom and him were fighting. It was the the worst fight I had ever heard. He had locked me and his kids in, in my room so we couldn't get out. And my mom was screaming so loud. I was so scared. And then she stopped. And I knew something was wrong. I just felt it. I just knew something bad was happening. And so I broke my window in my room. I crawled out and I started throwing rocks through their window. The biggest rocks I could throw broke their window. And he runs outside and starts chasing me down the road. I found out later that he had wrapped a wire hanger around my mom's neck and he was strangling her to death because she told him he was, she was going to leave him. And if I wouldn't have thrown those rocks through the window, she would have died because she was losing consciousness, which is why she stopped screaming. I ran to the neighbor's house. I called the police. My mom had enough time to get away, get in the car and leave. The police came a lot. There was a state police living in the same neighborhood, two houses away. And they never did anything. They didn't care. They believed him when he said that my mom was crazy and was the one that attacked him. They believed him and they left us there. They would ask her if she wanted to press charges and they would say, well, since you don't want to press charges, there's nothing we can do for you. It was the 80s. Doesn't excuse it, but there's a lot we didn't know back then that we know now. Police didn't know that a victim of intimate partner violence, their chance of dying increases exponentially the second they decide to leave. There was a lot of things that we didn't know back then. Imagine not only being abused by an intimate partner, but feeling like even the police can't help you. 
It's the plot of nearly every made-for-TV movie from the 80s and 90s, and for good reason. Even in 2023, domestic violence is an epidemic in some countries, and women particularly are dying at alarming rates. But John was finding more and more opportunities to prey on the vulnerable. He started to sexually abuse me when I was about 11. He told me that if I ever said anything to anybody, he would kill my mom and he would kill me and he would hide us and nobody would ever find us. And I believed him. So I didn't say anything. I learned how to survive. Learned not to speak up, not to make eye contact, not to talk to anybody. So I shut down and became a shell of a person. He, at the same time, starts grooming my cousin, my 14-year-old cousin, for sexual abuse. is calling my grandparents' house and making lewd remarks to my cousin, talking about the fact that he is in love with her and that she's beautiful and that he wants to be in a relationship with her, but she can't tell anybody because nobody would understand but that he wants to spend time with her and he wants to to date her and all this stuff, but she can't tell anybody. So he, he messed up. He thought he had found his next victim, but he didn't know her. He didn't know who she was. She had no reason to fear him. She's terrifying, honestly, but she's also a loud mouth. And so she let him talk and let him incriminate himself and even told him that she was going to not say anything to anybody. But the second she hung up, she went to my grandmother and told her. And then she called my mom and then she called her mom. When Brenda realized that the abuse was extending out to others, that's when things changed. She'd been told so many times that if she ever left, John would kill her. But now, with Eric's cousin being victimized, Brenda packed up her things and took Eric back to his grandparents' house. She then asked his cousin if she wanted to go to the police, and she did. Which, of course, set John off into a tailspin, desperate to preserve this good guy image that he'd had around their county. John began calling incessantly, to the point that Brenda had to take the phone off the hook. Finally, it was agreed that Brenda would only talk to John if it was down at the police station. We went into the police station and I disclosed to my mom that I had been sexually abused by him because I knew now that we were out of there. So we both went, myself and my cousin, we both went, we gave interviews to the police, nothing happened. My mom went to the district attorney and said, I want you to file charges against him for the death of Jacob. I'm now convinced that he's responsible for it and that he's fully capable. In the initial investigation, they asked my mom if she thought he was capable of hurting Jacob intentionally. And she said, I don't think so. When she went to the district attorney and asked him to press charges, he said that they would not press charges because she gave him an alibi. And that's what they're referring to. Her saying, I don't think he's capable of doing this. They also treated her like she was just a woman scorned, making trouble for her poor husband, who is an upstanding member of the community and doesn't deserve to be treated like that. And that she was just mad. Was he friends with the police or something? 
they play basketball every weekend. Yeah, they were very close. So mom and I leave and we are stalked and threatened for a couple of years after we left. He would come to my window at night, knock on my window and say, I'm going to fucking kill you and your mom. Every night, I would sleep under my bed. My mom decides to wait until there's a new district attorney. New one gets elected. We go talk to him. He says they can't do anything. Another DA comes in. Same thing. This time, we're told it's because there's a statute of limitations. And at the time, there was a statute of limitations on second-degree murder. And I do think that's the only way that they can charge this because... In New Mexico, for first-degree murder, you have to prove intent. And that is a very, very high bar to reach and would not be possible in this case. There's just no way that we could prove that he intended to hurt Jacob. So the case was closed. So the years go by, and then in 2005... Brenda reached out to the state police cold case unit and asked that Jacob's case be reopened. A lot more information was revealed. On July 9, 1987, John took that polygraph exam at the New Mexico State Police Office and was asked, Did you intentionally strike Jacob in the head area on April 9, 1987? John answered no. To the question of, did you intentionally strike the baby in the head area before he went limp, John answered no. It was determined that John was not being truthful in either of these responses, to which he explained that it was due to his fear of rejection by Brenda. He then admitted that he'd previously been untruthful about his story and how Jacob got gravely injured, and now it's time to change the story. Now he was saying that Jacob was standing and holding on to the armrest of a chair when John knelt down and rubbed his beard on Jacob's legs. It was then that he thought Jacob was about to lose his balance, so John raised his hand to stop Jacob from falling. Jacob leaned over John's head just as John abruptly raised his head, forcing Jacob off his feet and onto the floor, striking his head on the wooden armrest. John then held Jacob for about 10 minutes before deciding to put him down for a nap. He was drowsy, but not showing any outward signs of being hurt. John put Jacob on the couch for a few moments, and the baby then rolled off the couch, hitting his head again. It was then that Jacob began convulsing and vomiting, and John attempted to resuscitate him. In 1990, John's story changed again. Now he was saying that he was playing with Jacob and throwing him into the air. He failed to catch him, and Jacob hit the chair hard. This is not surprising behavior, particularly in a heat-of-the-moment or second-degree murder. The perpetrator panics and creates a story. When holes are punched in that story, they amend and amend to fit the facts. In 1991, Brenda went to the Socorro Police Department and provided a statement regarding John's participation in Jacob's death. She said that initially she thought it was an accident, but that perhaps the whole truth hadn't come out yet. At the time, Brenda was married to John and told police that for the past few years, she'd suffered both verbal and physical abuse at the hands of her husband. She no longer believed John when he placed blame on Eric for the previous injuries to Jacob— 
and further feared for Eric's safety due to John's violent tendencies. In August of 92, John was asked to come to Socorro Police Department and he was placed under arrest for abandonment or abuse of a child. The story that John provided at this time was that Jacob had been sick and was on medication. Here's the statement directly from the police report. The suspect stated that what really happened was that Jacob Londine would lean on his neck while he was laying on the floor and that he felt that Jacob Londine was losing his balance and so he grabbed his leg. The suspect stated that it felt like Jacob was going to fall to the right, but that he fell to the left instead. The suspect stated that he'd moved fast to try and stop Jacob's fall and that he fell anyway and hit the armchair. There are other details in the report, but notably, when John was asked why he didn't tell the truth in the first place, he said that he feared Brenda would not marry him. And when asked why John reached out to a 13-year-old, and asked her out, John replied that he'd smoked pot laced with cocaine that day and was really out of it, and doesn't think he made that call. When asked about the polygraph exam and failing the two questions, John said he was really out of it on the day in question and thought he was back in the hospital when he was a child. He'd taken allergy meds before the exam and didn't remember being asked questions. Further, John stated that in an attempt to resuscitate Jacob, he'd hit him on the back and that it was possible he'd hit him in the head. Here's Eric talking about the case being reopened in 2005. Sergeant Christian did a phenomenal job. Even with the lack of supporting documentation that's missing, and there's a lot, there's a lot that's missing, he still concluded that it was very clear that this person was responsible for Jacob's death. It's not clear if it was intentional or negligent, but it's clear. John had four stories, maybe five, definitely four. Some of them, there was a thread of consistency through some of them. I do believe that he was dubbing cassette tapes that night. I do believe that Jacob was fussy and he was probably given a tape to play with. But the circumstances around Jacob's injuries are where the story changes dramatically. And the first time, a couple of times, he tried to say that the injuries were related to some sharp force trauma, which it's very clear in the autopsy that it was blunt force trauma. And the doctor even went so far as to say that it looked like about the size of an open palm of an adult male's hand. And, and I think that a doctor at a trauma one center would be able to identify that kind of trauma, probably having seen it throughout his time at University of New Mexico Hospital. But his story changed a number of times. We learned through that investigation that he confessed. We only know that because there's one sentence in the case file that says John does not need a polygraph because he confessed. There's no recording. There's no signed affidavit. There's no signed confession. There's no notes about what he confessed to. There's no video. There's nothing. We don't know what he said. We don't know what the circumstances were around that confession. We don't know anything at all other than he confessed. We also learned that he failed that lie detector test. We know that 
polygraphs are not admissible in court these days, and I know that they're problematic, but at the time, that would have been very damning for anybody. And so the fact that he was able to walk out of the state police office, it just blows my mind. I don't understand. One of the questions he failed was, did you intentionally hit Jacob on the head? He said no. How did he walk out of there? I don't understand it. And all this time, you still don't you still don't have an answer. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. I know that he came up with an excuse and he said that he was on a bunch of substances when he took that test. Okay, but why did you drive us to Santa Fe then? So the the cold case investigator sent an email or a letter, sorry, to the district attorney at the time. And he said, it's clear to me, I'm paraphrasing, it's clear to me that Jacob died one way, not the three or four ways that John mentioned. And based on all of the evidence and based on everything here, I think that this case could be prosecuted, should be prosecuted, and could be won. The attorney general wrote back and said, well, actually, we can't because of the statute of limitations. And so we're going to close the case. And that was it. So that was 2005. Eric goes on to explain that in the last 10 years, the statute of limitations on second-degree murder has been repealed by the state of New Mexico, and there was a Supreme Court case. That created precedents for other cases that were held under that statute to be able to be brought forward to the court. We talk about it all the time. The importance of advocacy and how oftentimes it's the families that are behind the scenes leading the fight— It's the people that have been hurt the most that also have to take on the enormous weight of fighting for their loved ones. But there's hope. Because advocacy can pay off. Here again is Eric. So last year we did the 10 Days of Jacob campaign. And I asked... I had originally asked the Attorney General to open the case and he said he couldn't. But he did review it. And... He sent a letter to the then district attorney asking him to try the case and offering all of the resources of the state, of the attorney general's office, investigators, money, whatever he needs to try this case. He ignored that. So I did the 10 days of Jacob from April 1st to April 10th, ending on the anniversary of Jacob's death. And I asked anybody who cared about Jacob's case, anybody who helped cover Jacob's case, to ask people to call, to email, to write the district attorney in Socorro County and tell him to do the right thing. Tell him to bring charges against this person. He lasted two days, which made me really happy because he was getting bombarded with calls and emails and letters from all over the world. People were calling from Australia. People were calling from England to have been ignored and gaslit for 35 years. And then to have the world show up like that, for a long time, I felt like my mom and I were crazy. Because we were the only ones who gave a shit about the fact that Jacob was killed. Now I know that's not true. He lasted two days, and he sent a letter to the Attorney General. And he said, we can't handle this. We can't deal with this. This It's too much for us. We're turning the case over to you. Which is the only way that the Attorney General could be involved is if 
the DA turns it over or if he bungles it. So Attorney General took it and reopened it and is investigating it right now. So it's good. It's good news, but we're not we're not there yet. We're not at the point where we could even expect charges to be brought forward. The last conversation I had with them, they essentially had done nothing. And now there's a new attorney general who is very concerned with his electability, which is good for me because I can use that. I can work with that. I can make it unpopular for him to ignore us. And that's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm reaching out because the more people that know about Jacob's story, the less likely it is for him to ignore us. There's power in sharing Jacob's story. It seems like the smallest thing. It seems insignificant, but it actually is probably the best thing that somebody can do to help the case. Tell somebody about Jacob. Share his story, either through this podcast or any other creator's show that has covered this case. That's what it's going to take. I was naive when I started this fight. I thought that this was going to be, you know, the bad guy did the bad thing. The good guy gets the bad guy, puts him in jail, and he can't do the bad thing anymore. He's had 36 years to re-victimize people. 36 years to hurt more people, more kids. Who knows how many people he's hurt? And the state is responsible for any of that that happened after Jacob died because they failed. They failed to do the right thing. I don't know why. I have things that go through my mind. That doesn't mean that that's why, but I have thoughts about why. So the last conversation we had with the attorney general's office, we were asked to collect evidence for them, which is insulting. It's insulting to my mom and to me. We've been begging the state of New Mexico to do something for 30 six years and the reason evidence is missing is not because of my mom and i we aren't the ones that lost the evidence so it takes a lot of balls to say that to somebody who has been trying to get you to do the right thing for 36 years and when you finally agree to do it you're shirking the responsibility and we did get an apology from the state of new mexico but it's not enough not enough. I mean, I appreciate the apology. It's good to feel validated. It's good to know that you finally hear what we've been saying for 36 years. But an apology doesn't mean anything if you don't change your behavior. Here's a message from Eric about the journey he and Brenda have been on for decades. There's a chance that we may never get justice for Jacob. It's something that we have to live with every day doesn't mean I don't have hope. It doesn't mean I'm not going to keep trying. But there's always that thought in the back of my mind. And so I say that because primarily I, I am doing this for Jacob. Primarily I am doing this to, to further the fight for justice for Jacob. But my mom and I both agree that if it helps one person telling the story, if it helps one person to avoid that situation or to see something in a friend's relationship and reach out and, and try to be there for them to get them through it, then it's worth it. These kinds of conversations are not easy to talk about. They're not fun. They can be scary. They can be 
traumatizing to people, but we also can't ignore this problem away. And as much as it makes us uncomfortable to talk about it, and as much as it's difficult to listen to, this problem is so pervasive. I guarantee you that anybody listening to this right now, you either know somebody or you are somebody who has experienced some form of intimate partner violence, domestic violence, or intimate partner abuse. I guarantee you that. And if it's that pervasive, why can't we talk about it? We can't ignore this problem away. We have to face it. If we don't face it, we can't expect it to change. We can't expect things to get better. We have to be honest with ourselves about this. We have to be honest about it. It hurts to tell this story. It's not fun, but it's also super important. Like I said, John went through the entire cycle of abuse textbook. Like he was reading it line by line on how to do it. These things, there's a pattern to them. It's easily identifiable if you just know what to look for. But the only way you're going to know what to look for is by listening to people talking about it. I think my last thought on this is I'm very fortunate to have a grandmother who is incredibly wise and not the warmest person in the world, but very practical. She pulled me aside after all of this happened and she said, I really, I really want to talk to you about this. You have a choice to make right now. You can let this consume you. You can let it turn you cold, hard in your heart, turn you into the very thing that you fear the most. Or you can decide to do something different. You can decide to break this cycle. You get to say, it stops with me. You get to say no more. You have that power. But you have to decide to do that. And I am so grateful for that because that is the best gift that I can give to my son. He never has to worry. He never has to be afraid of being in our house. He never has to wonder. Anybody who's gone through this, they can make that choice. Here is today's call to action. Eric and his mother, Brenda, are looking to hire a private investigator to look into this case and to gather more evidence. You can help by clicking the link in the show notes and donating to the GoFundMe or simply share Jacob's story with someone else. If you or someone you know is a victim of intimate partner violence or domestic violence of any kind, you do not have to go through this alone. You also don't have to leave your situation right away or all at once. Contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 1-800-799-SAFE, or text START to 88788, or check the show notes for more resources. Thank you to my very special guest today, Eric Carter Londeen. Make sure to go subscribe to his podcast, True Consequences. And thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. 
to connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at MethodAndMadnessPod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Mo and Spo. That's it for this time. Take care of yourself. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.